Well, it's uh, good to open the word with you. It's good to look and see what God has to teach us about praising him, about glorifying him. We've been doing that already in our singing. We've been, we've been praising God. We've been adoring him. We've been glorifying him. If you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And as Paul closes out these first three chapters, let's see what he teaches us about praising God. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 Paul's been teaching theology. He's been teaching what we should believe. And now he's going to close out this section with a doxology. A doxology. So verses 20 and 21 are his doxology to God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we do ask that you would work in us right now, that we would not be afraid to ask of you great and wonderful things for your glory. Work in us now. Make this prayer that that Paul prayed a reality in our service and in each of our lives. Help us, Lord, to see the power of this text, your power that works in our hearts to worship you. We ask that you would do that with me and with this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul's now moving, as I said, from his prayer that he just was closing out chapter 3 with. He had petitioned God for many things, and now he's moving to doxology. A doxology is a hymn of praise to God. There is a hymn that we sometimes sing called the doxology, and it's a praise to God. Praise Him through all things, blessings flow. But really, all of these songs are doxologies, if they're directed towards God, if they're praising God. And so now Paul wants to to close out what he's been teaching with this doxology. And as believers, we ought to be doxological, not just theological, not just applicational, but we ought to be doxological. We ought to be praising God. Too often, we're just concerned about what we need to do. Well, what do we need to do, God? Give me a list. It's not wrong to ask what we need to do. That's a, that's a right question. But first, we need to know what to believe so that we can do things in line with that belief. We need to know theology. We need to know about God, who God is, what he's told us to do, how he's worked in the past, how he's working now, how he's working in the future. We need to know Christ. We need to know the Holy Spirit. We need to know all the things called systematic theology that are taught to us in the Bible. But as important as application and theology are, we have to stop and say, when are we going to praise God? When are we going to offer up glory to God? It's not just learn, 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 do, 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 but it's actually learn about God so that we can praise him and live out a sanctified life for the glory of his name. We need to be doxological. We need to apply the theology we learn, but we need to praise God for even teaching us these things. We need to praise God for who he is. That's what really the word theology means, learning more about God, how God works, yes, but also who God is, the attributes of God, the incommunicable attributes, the communicable attributes of God, the Trinity, who Christ is, the fact that he's fully God and fully man, who the Holy Spirit is, the fact that he is fully God as well. Three persons, one God. We need to know more about God so that we can praise him, so that we can rightly glorify him. Modern man doesn't seem to be too concerned about it, but ancient man really was concerned about 
how to worship God, the God that they believed in, but still how to worship God. That was a real serious issue. If you didn't worship your God correctly, then you believe bad things would happen to you. And even though they were wrong, the pagans were, and who they worshiped, we see in the Old Testament, when God wasn't worshiped, when God wasn't praised, punishment, judgment came upon God's people. Even when the person is truly born again and continues to struggle with their sinful ways, if they don't stop and worship the Lord, then they will continue and continue into that sin. So Paul's teaching us here that all of these things that he's already taught us about God, all of these things should lead us to praising God, should lead us to doxology, a praise to God. That's what's fitting. That's what's right. Our worship of God can't rise any higher than our knowledge of him. Steve Lawson often preaches that message, and I I love it when he says that that our orthodoxy is important. But our doxology is also important. Our orthopraxy, how we practice that in worship. But the two go together. The more you know, the more you can worship God. The better you can worship God. The more you know, the better you can worship God. And that just continues as you grow. Well, that's what Paul is going to show us here. And he's going to teach us here why. Why we should praise God. Why we should glorify him. So I've got two main points here of this passage. It's a short little paragraph, but it's it's a mountain peak of Ephesians. It's right in the center, and it's the highest worship that Paul is going to offer here in the book of Ephesians. So two main points, and then we'll talk application at the end. First of all, we ought to worship and praise God as a church for the omnipotence of God. For the omnipotence of God. That's what he's focusing on in verse 20. The power of God. That's what omnipotence is. It's God's ability to do anything, anything, consistent with his nature. Omnipotence, just Latin for all-powerful. God is all-powerful. God can do anything that's consistent with his nature. He would never do anything that's not consistent with his nature. He would never do anything evil, for example. He has the power to do anything, but he will only do it if it is good and right and holy. So God is omnipotent. It's, It's a an attribute that belongs to his nature. It is who God is. God is all-powerful. Omnipotence, you could say in another way, it's his infinite power and what makes him capable of doing whatever he deems as good. Infinite power. There is no way to measure God's power. We see this over and over in Scripture. One of the best, I think, uh, verses is in Daniel. When King Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by God. He's greatly humbled and he has to admit that there is one true and righteous God. So in Daniel 4.35, he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he, God, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can compare to God's power. No one can tell God what to do. No one can make God do anything. And certainly, one of the most powerful kings in ancient times knew at that point. He had been humbled by God, and he knew that only God rules in the heavens, that only God is all-powerful. We often think we're powerful. We often think, as humans, we've, we've tamed the atom. We've flown into space. And yet, what is that compared to God's power? 
And Paul's going to show us here that it's God who's all-powerful and we should praise him. In fact, he'll use three words, three words here for power, just in verse 20. You don't really see them if you have the NASB in most translations. That first word, able, that's a word for power in Greek. And then the word working as another type of power in Greek. So let's look at that first phrase. Now to him who is able. Literally now to the one who has power. And if you went on down the sentence, the one who has power according to the power that powerfully works within us. How much can Paul say God is powerful? He is all powerful. He's using all the words that he can right here to describe God's power. And it's been a main theme from chapter one where he prayed that we would be granted God's power. And again in chapter three, that we would be strengthened with God's power. He's powerful enough to do all that we would ask our need of him. This is the God that we worship. This is your God. If you're in Christ, there's a God, your God, who is powerful enough, able enough to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. It's so magnificent, God's power is, Paul says. It's so wonderful. It's so great that Paul has a hard time describing it. We often run into this problem when we study God. How can we define something about God that's infinite? We really can't. We, we can just negate it. We can say that it's not like ours. We can just list them many things that it's not. But God has infinite power. And, and Paul is at a lack for words. He's using two different concepts just to describe God's power there. He says it's beyond all. You see that in the, in the NASB, beyond all, which is a comparison. It's saying that it's a power to a degree which is beyond that of something comparative on a scale. It's beyond all that we can compare it to. God's power is that great. You cannot compare God's power to anything because it's beyond all. He can accomplish anything we ask. God's powerful enough to accomplish anything we ask because it's beyond all that we could even compare it to. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that. But Paul goes further. You notice I skipped the phrase, far more abundantly. It's enough to say God's power is beyond all that we could even imagine. But it's far more abundantly beyond all. This word for far more abundantly, it's, it's one word in Greek. It's very interesting. It's a double prefix compound word, which means Paul took a normal word. He stuck a prefix on front of it and another prefix on front of it to describe how powerful God is. Now, the translations struggle with this word. It only comes up a couple of times in the Bible. It's translated here as far more abundantly, but you more literally could say quite beyond all measure. The highest form of comparison imaginable. The, the word is huper ek peruso. Three words sort of shoved together there. Beyond anything imaginable, far beyond that, he says. That's how he's trying to describe God's power. To an extraordinary degree involving considerable excess. Another way you can define this word. Considerable excess over what would be expected. It's extremely abundant. That's how powerful your God is. Sometimes we think of God not being able to do what we ask or not being able to handle our country or the world. How's God going to handle the coronavirus? How's he going to handle Iran? How's he going to handle Muslim terrorists? You know, just read the news every day and you begin to wonder what God is even doing. We have in our minds a concept of God that's too little, that's too small. Paul says God's so powerful, you can't even describe it. He's going to try because he has been inspired by God to do so. But he's far more abundantly 
I might rephrase it and say, to the one who is able to do beyond everything, infinitely in excess of that which we ask or think. All of this to describe what God can do for us, what God can do when we ask or even think. Paul's saying that that's what he does for us. That's the God that we should praise. He's going into this doxology just describing who God is. Paul says, he is so powerful, you can't describe it, and he will answer everything that we ask for and even what we think. Ask indicates prayer, a petition to him. Whatever we pray, whatever we ask for, God is powerful enough to answer. Now, it needs to be in line with his will. We're not to go around asking that God just make us rich, make us rich, give us a blessing, give us a blessing. Sometimes he will, sometimes he will. That's not what we're to be thinking in our minds, though. We are to ask God for the things we need in life and the things we need to glorify him. Necessities and to glorify him. He might give you more money to glorify him. He might give you more responsibility to glorify him. And you won't ask for it, but he'll give you trials as well to glorify him. Tests, temptations. But Paul's saying whatever we ask, God is powerful enough. And not only that, you see what he says? Not only what we ask, but also what we think. Before we even say it, God knows it. Just what's in our minds that we can't even verbalize. The Holy Spirit offers up prayers for us and God can answer those prayers. Not just what we ask him, but even what we're thinking. His ability is far above even our words to conceptualize what we need to glorify him. That's the amazing God that you worship. This is not a little God that has a a statue that people put in their yards to worship or in their homes. This is not like the pagan gods made of wood and stone and gold. This is the God of all the universe. The God who's created every atom in the universe and controls it and holds it in place. And he can answer our prayers, even our thoughts. We're feeble. We're weak. Sometimes we don't even have words. Sometimes we don't even know what we need. We don't even know what's best. Have you ever just prayed, God, I don't, I don't even know what's best in this situation? I just give it to you. I, I don't even know what to ask for. I just trust that you can answer it, God. That's what Paul is including here. We think too little of God. We don't think God is powerful enough. But Paul said he is super abundantly, extremely, beyond all powerful. And he says how God accomplishes this. How how does God accomplish these requests? How does he answer us? According to the power that works within us. God's all-powerful, yet he stoops down, really. He stoops down to, to put his power in us. He doesn't have to, but, but Christ came to the earth and humbled himself and became a man, and, and he took on flesh, and he died so that we might be saved. And when we're saved, when we're justified, he puts his spirit in us, and that spirit works in us. That spirit is constantly working in us. And Paul says that God will answer. God will be able to give what you ask or think according to the power that works within us. God does far more in us that we could ever ask or think through the Holy Spirit. He gives the Spirit. The Spirit is a gift. The Spirit is a blessing. 
And he gives the Spirit to be in us, to work through us, to glorify God. You may not think that you are blessed and given these things through the Spirit working in you, but that's what Paul says here. It's according to the power that works within us. God's power in us. This is not miraculous power. God is not saying that this kind of power is what you would go use to raise the dead. We read of Jesus doing that. We have some instances of the apostles and prophets in the Old Testament. That's not the power he's talking about. See, we we think too little of God, and then when we hear the word power, sometimes we jump to miraculous wonders and signs. He's talking about the everyday power that we need to live, to glorify him, that the church needs to worship him. The power that you need to live a godly life. The power that you need to tell others about Christ. Look back at 3.16. He's already talked about power. So when he gives this doxology, the Ephesians would have it fresh on their mind. 3.16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened. That's power. To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That's the kind of power he's talking about. The power you need each day to live a godly life. You're not the next apostle. You're not the next prophet. You don't need the kind of power that raises the dead. God's not giving that now. What he is giving is power to live every day for him. So that when you get up each day, you really can't say, sometimes we do, but you can't say, I just don't have what I need, God. You didn't give me enough. Now, sometimes we feel like that, but that's our own weakness. God, it says here, has given us this power. It's the power that works present tense in us. It is working now in us. The power to glorify him in the church. The power to praise him. The power to live a godly life. The ordinary things of the Christian life that we need God's power for. And it comes through God working in us. So just looking at this first point, we need to, we need to ask, do we really believe that God can give us what we ask or think? Do we really? Do we have the right concept? Do we have a high enough view of God that we trust he will answer our prayer. Are we too scared to ask him? Or are we too Calvinistic sometimes to ask him? God's providence is already planned. He's already decreed all things. He already knows all things. Why do we need to even say anything to him? There are people like that. I've run into some. They, they desire to do something great for God, but they're waiting on God to show them the way. And I told this young man, I said, here it is in scripture. That's all that you have. That's all that you need. Well, I'm just going to wait for God to open all the doors. But he's already given you the Bible. Now go, take the first step. God's already made the first step in putting a desire in this man's heart. We need to ask God for the important things in life. And we need to ask God for the great things in life that glorify his name. Not to be the next billionaire. Not to raise the dead. But the things you know will glorify him that you don't have the strength to do. You need to ask God and you need to believe that he will answer because he is that powerful. Go forward to James chapter 1, the book of James. Paul is in in worship here, in doxology, uh, talking about God's power and ability to answer prayer. Uh, James is more in a corrective mode in the book of James. He is correcting some problems in the churches that he writes to. So in James 1, 6, he speaks of prayer. James 1, 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, And it will be given to him. Not only is God all powerful, but God is rich and generous and merciful. And he will give us what we ask. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. 
You really believe God's all-powerful to answer your prayer requests? Even the thoughts that you can't even verbalize? You have to believe. He must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You can't check the box and say, I believe God is all-powerful. Sure, pastor, I agree with the text. And then not practice that. You've got to ask God. You've got to ask God. You've got to petition God. In addition to adoring him, in addition to giving thanks for him, all the things that you should be doing in prayer, you need to ask him because you believe he is powerful. What is it that you really want to ask God for? Is it for the salvation of a family member, a child, a grandchild, a brother, a sister? Is it to take a leap of faith into ministry? Maybe full-time ministry? Or maybe just a certain ministry in the church? What is it you need to ask God for that you've been holding out on? Paul says, he's all-powerful. He can answer us. He is able to do that. Secondly, verse 21 we need to praise God, not just for his power, but also for his glory, for the glory of God. To him, again, speaking of God here, not Christ the Son, but God the Father. That's the context of the last person mentioned in 319. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. This word glory, doxa, it means heaviness, weightiness in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it means brightness, splendor. And the Bible uses God's glory in two different ways. There are two different types of glory that are used in Scripture. First is God's intrinsic glory. This is an attribute of God. This is glory that is within God. The ultimate beauty of all God's perfections, all God's attributes. All of them, the sum total, can be described as just God's glory. It's his supreme radiance and splendor. So it has an outward experience, something that, that can be seen when somebody is seeing God. No one has seen God at any time, but Christ had a radiance. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? You remember how bright he was? You remember on, on the road that Paul has that experience with Christ? You remember John's vision in Revelation? That's just a glimpse of God's glory through the sun. It's his radiance, it's his splendor, it's the sum total of all his attributes. The revelation of, of all that God is. That's his intrinsic glory. Spoken of in Isaiah 6.3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of God's glory. Isaiah 42.8. I will not, God says, I will not give my glory to another. You can't take away from God's glory. You can't take a piece of God's glory. He can't give it away. It is who he is. It is him. It describes him. It is him. So Paul's use of, of the word here isn't describing God's intrinsic glory in the church and in Christ. The Father has a glory, and it's part of who he is. But there's another way God's glory is used in the Bible. But not only God's intrinsic, who he actually is in his being, but ascribed glory. Second use of glory in the Bible is an ascribed glory. Ascribed glory, that which we, we praise God with, meaning honor him, praise him, worship him. We glorify him. There's God's glory, and then there's glorifying God, in other words. 
a verse that describes that. Psalm 96. Psalm 96, verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. You can't give God more glory and you can't give God more strength, but you can ascribe that to him. You can speak that truth. You can give him praise and honor and worship because he is glorious and he is all powerful. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. And that's an interesting verse too, Psalm 96, because it's ascribed to the Lord, O families of the peoples, the Gentiles. Even you Gentiles ascribe glory to God. And now we have Paul in Ephesians. What's he doing? He's going, taking the gospel to the Gentiles so that they can glorify God. Paul speaks of this in Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. God's already full of glory. He is glory. But Paul's ascribing glory to him. He's glorifying the name of God because of who God is. So that's what he's mentioning here in verse 21. To God be the glory. In other words, glorify God. Glorify God for who he is. Who is he? Well, he's the all-powerful God that Paul just talked about in verse 20. He's the God who's done all these things that Paul talked about in chapters 1 through 3. He's chosen, he's elected, he's predestined, he's redeemed, he's adopted, he's sealed in the Spirit. He's broken down the dividing wall with his son, Jesus Christ. He's brought Jew and Gentile together. He's formed up the church. He's strengthened the inner man. He's given us what we need to live the Christian life. It's that God. It's that God that we ascribe glory to. But where does Paul say that we do that? Where do we ascribe glory to God? In the church and in Christ Jesus. Two places that God is most glorified, Paul says. And he says, let it be so. Let it happen. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. The church is what? It's Christ's body. And then Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Now what's interesting here is that the church comes first in the listing. Paul has many doxologies in his letters. It's the only one where the church is mentioned in the doxology. And it's the only place where the church comes first in the list before Christ. That shocks a lot of scholars, particularly those who don't care so much about theology. It shocks them that that someone would write and put the church in front of Jesus. Well, it shouldn't shock us, because what is the church but the body of Christ? What's he been talking about in chapters 2 and 3? The church, the body of Christ, how God's blessed us, how God's brought us together. And so Christ and his church go together. It's only with our modern minds that we've separated the two, where people say, I can be with Jesus and part of Christ, but I have no part with the church. Paul says they're, they're together. Christ is the head, the church is his body. You can't split the two because that's where God's glory is displayed. That's where we are to glorify God. The church is not a building though. It's not a place. What is the church? It's an assembled body of believers. They're coming together for worship, They're coming together for service. They're coming together for edification, building up, and evangelism. And the ordinances. And church discipline. We could just go down the list of what the church should be doing. But at its core, it means, ecclesia means assembly. And in the context of the New Testament, it's an assembly of holy ones, of saints, of believers. Come together to worship 
God. It's God's masterpiece. It's the community of the redeemed. It's Jews and Gentiles brought together to worship God. What is Christ's body? It is the church. We've been united with him. And now a major goal, Paul says, and he's praising God for this, is that we can glorify God. What should we be doing in the church? Having a party? Having fun? Entertaining? Well, the primary goal, Paul says, is glorification of God. And he's praising God for it. He's actually glorifying God for God's glory in the church. What are we to do? What are we supposed to do when we meet? Well, a primary mission is to glorify God, to ascribe glory to him, to proclaim who he is, to proclaim what he's done. That's why the scriptures are so important. How can you talk about who God is if you set this aside, if you don't open it, if you in your own individual life don't read it, if you don't study it? We glorify God for who he is and what he's done. This is the record. The Bible is the record of what God has done and teaches us who he is. So we have to glorify God in the church and also Christ. We must glorify God for the work he's done in Christ. And particularly in context here, bringing the church into existence. Without Christ, we have no church. Without Christ, we have no salvation. Without Christ, we have nothing. We have nothing. You wouldn't even be sitting here. If there was no Christ, what are you even doing here? We're here because we're Christ's body. We're here because we're Christ's church. And it is him that we worship. And it is him that we glorify God for. You should be thanking God regularly, daily for Christ, for what he's done for you. Yeah, God's predestined you if you're a believer here today. That's what the Bible teaches. But you ought to be thanking God for doing that because it certainly wasn't anything that you or I deserved. It wasn't anything we deserved. And yet he saved us and he stuck us together here to worship him regularly. Praise God for that and praise him for Christ Jesus. How long is this to go on? Do we just praise him on Sundays and glorify him on Sundays? Do we just do it on Sundays and Wednesdays at the Bible study? Do we just do it for a little while when we're first saved and then sort of get tired and burnt out? What does Paul say there? To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. That's how long we will glorify God. It's often been said, if you don't like praising God in this life, you're really going to have a problem in heaven. Because that's what it is. It's not us sitting on the cloud playing a harp and our, just our spirit sitting there. We will be doing things. We will be living on the new earth. But all of it will be done to glorify God. And if we're not doing it now as a Christian, and if we don't like it especially, that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem. But Paul says here, God will always, always be glorified. All generations. That speaks to the generations of mankind upon the earth. As long as this current age exists, God will be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. We should be glorifying him in the church as long as the church is here. As long as you live, as long as your generation is, you should glorify God. And then he says forever and ever. Now he's pointing past this age into eternity. We are going to ascribe God's glory forever. We can't be with him and not ascribe him glory. We will worship with him. We will be with him. We will be with Christ. New heavens, new earth. Everything we do, everything you do for work on the new earth, everything you do when you speak, 
Every single thing that you do will be to glorify God forever and ever into eternity. And then he closes with something we're familiar with, a word that doesn't actually come up all that often in Paul's letters, except when he closes a prayer or a doxology. Amen. Or amen, if you want to pronounce it like that. The word means let it be. The word means truly. It's a way in Hebrew of confirming what has just been said. It's putting an exclamation point on it. May God be glorified. May God be praised for his power and the glory that he has in the church and in Christ Jesus. Let it be truly, truly. I repeat what I just said, Paul saying, that's how important this is. Paul wants the church, the Ephesians, to recognize who God is and how powerful he is and how he can answer our prayers. And he wants the church to glorify God. That's what we're here for. That's what we are to do. So let's look at how we can apply that. How do we apply that in the church, especially in the church? Because that's what he says, glorification in the church. It occurs in the church. So you need to ask, how do we do that? Paul's not writing a systematic theology, so he's not just going to list them for us now. We have to do a little work. We have to dig around. I've come up with five that we'll work through, but they're contained in the letter. They're contained here in his letter. They're contained in the New Testament. How do we glorify God? Well, first of all, by being edified. We, we glorify God in the church by being edified, by being built up in the faith. Even if you're not teaching the word, even if you're not really studying the word like you should, at the least we glorify God by being built up in the faith. Paul's going to open this up in chapter 4, verse 13. Let's just look at it. Uh, I'll read through it quickly here. Until, so the building up of the body in verse 12, equipping of the saints, building up of the body, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. All of us are going to be built up. We're going to be edified. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're not going to be little babies anymore. We're not going to be children tossed around by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. And he goes on to say in 15, speaking the truth in love. What's a way to glorify God? Just receive the teaching. Just receive the teaching of Scripture, the teaching in the church, the, the teaching in the Bible studies. Receive the teaching and be built up. Grow. Remember, that's, that's what his prayer was that we looked at last week. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. He's praying that they would grow. That's how we can glorify God. Grow. Stop resisting growth. Don't run from it. Take every opportunity that you can make to be around other believers in this church to grow. We've put together many opportunities. We don't expect someone to be at everything that goes on. But there are many opportunities, studies, home groups, places that we can gather to be edified, to be built up. Not to mention all the connections you can make in your own time with just counseling and edifying one another. Paul mentions in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him admonishing, there's some correction going on there, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. The goal is to be complete in Christ, to be edified, to be mature, so that we can glorify God forever and ever. Secondly, and closely related, is teaching. 
I'm just flipping edification around now to how are we being edified through the teaching, by instruction and teaching of the word. The church has to be teaching. The church has to be teaching. Jesus said, teach them to obey all, to observe all that I commanded you to the apostles. There must be teaching in the church. How can you be edified if there's no teaching? And I'm talking about teaching from the Bible, not just teaching for teaching's sake, not just teaching how to have a better business, better marriage, better children. Teaching from the scriptures, reading the scripture, explaining the scripture, applying the scripture, worshiping in our songs and our prayers through the teaching of scripture. There has to be teaching. That's why Paul says, preach the word in season and out of season. And we are out of season, I think. Not here, but in the world. We are out of season as Christians when it comes to preaching. He says in 2 Timothy 2, the things which you have heard from me, Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul passed on the teaching to Timothy who will teach others in the church, who will teach others in the church. There's four generations right there. Every church will fold and fall apart without biblical teaching. It just will. All scriptures inspired, Paul says, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching. That's what it's for. It's for teaching. It's for reproof. It's for correction. It's for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. How can we be built up if we're not having teaching? Always make sure there is teaching going on in this church. That's our job as elders. But if you outlive us, make sure there is teaching going on in this church. Third, fellowship. So we have being edified, teaching, and fellowship. That's where we're serving. We're caring. We're discipling. We're counseling. There will be teaching happening in fellowship. But what I'm looking at here is more of gathering together for these things to happen naturally. Fellowship is not just hanging out on the golf course or just necessarily sharing a meal with somebody. Those can be fellowship. But the idea is that you're caring for others in the church, you're discipling them, you're counseling them, you're building them up, you're getting to know them. You're learning more about them so you can properly care for them. That's what the early early church did. The first thing they did was to receive teaching and to fellowship. Acts 2, 42. 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So fellowship is including meals together. It's including praying together. It's really the goal of our home groups here at our church. There's a lot of fellowship going on. There's a lot of prayer going on. In our home group, we pray more and fellowship more than teach. But there is teaching, of course, as well. Fellowship. Acts 2, again, verse 46. They were breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness, sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. This is not just events we have here for fellowship. You need to take it upon yourself to fellowship with other believers because that glorifies God. Particularly believers in this church. Get to know them. Have them for dinner. Take them out to eat. There should be these things going on as we fellowship. Come to the events we do have. The events for the men. The events for the women. 
Fellowship is important to glorify God. Fourthly, ordinances. How do we glorify God? Ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. That glorifies God. He's given them to us to publicly point to Him. To publicly point to Him. When, When a person takes the Lord's Supper, Jesus says that you're proclaiming my death until I come. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds us of that. Jesus says, remember me when you take the Lord's Supper. When we did that last Sunday, that was a proclamation of Christ. It wasn't just putting a few things in our mouth and and swallowing. That was proclaiming something as a church together, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, that we serve the same Lord, that he died for us. It says so much about us and about God. We're glorifying him by, by practicing that. We're glorifying him by baptism as well. Baptism is a declaration that you have been born again, that you have been washed, that you've been cleansed, that the Holy Spirit is within you. And it's telling the world. It's not something you go off and just jump in the pool and jump out, jump in the bathtub. It's a public proclamation. It's something that people die for in other countries because it's saying, I am a Christian and I'm going to be responsible for my faith. I'm going to live a Christian life. Praise God. It glorifies him because it's a public proclamation proclamation of the gospel. And then lastly, evangelism. And I'll include missions as well. Evangelism includes missions. It's what Paul's been doing in Ephesus. It's what he did in Acts. All these letters are written to churches that he started, that he evangelized the people there. They believed in the gospel. They believed in the Christ who could save. They put their trust in Jesus Christ. They turned from their sins. That glorifies God. If every sinner who repents causes an angel in heaven to rejoice, the idea is what what happens with God's own heart? How much does he rejoice? How much is God glorified every time somebody is saved? Now, you personally cannot save another person. You can't get in there and mess with their heart and cause them to be saved. Jesus never said to do that. He never said, put the pressure on somebody so much that they have to say, yes, I believe. He said what? Proclaim the gospel. Go out and make disciples. Tell people about forgiveness in Christ. Tell them about sin if they need to hear about sin. Some people don't. They already know. They already feel the guilt of their sin. Others feel the guilt, but they ignore it. So you have to teach them about sin. Teach them about God. Teach them about God's holiness. But proclaim the gospel because that glorifies God. Regardless, even if they don't believe, you are glorifying God by just proclaiming the truth. Jesus stood in front of thousands of people and proclaimed the gospel. Did everyone believe that heard Jesus? If the best preacher, if they're not going to listen to the best preacher in the world, then we ought not to think, you know, we've only had a few conversions in our life. Not up to you. It's up to God. Your job, proclaim the gospel. Take the gospel to the entire world. So those are the five things that I could come up with just as a church. There are many more. Those are some things that we need to work on. We need to Consider these regularly. We need to think about how to glorify God. This message is about the church's praise to God. That's what Paul's getting at. God created the church to bring glory to himself forever and ever. We will continually forever and ever be praising God. Charles Spurgeon said, Not for yourself, old church, do you exist any more than Christ existed for himself. What was Christ's mission upon the earth? To glorify the Father. He came to do the will of the Father. We're here to do the will of the Father. 
That's what we're to be about. Let's worship, let's praise, and let's glorify God the Father. Amen? Let it be truly, truly. Lord, thank you for the message of the gospel of Christ, that we can not only be saved, not only be forgiven, but we can glorify you. We can praise your name together corporately as a church. Yes, in our individual lives, but as a church with differences and previous animosities. We can come together now, set those aside, and praise your name. We love you here, God. We want to worship you. We want to glorify you. We want to accomplish the things that you've given us in Scripture. Help us to do that. Give us your all-powerful strength through the Holy Spirit's work in us to glorify your holy name. We ask this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.